The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Before we start today's show, I would like to thank Barry and Jerry for their recent donations. If you are able to help keep the show on the air, please go to achshow.com and click the banner at the top. Today, it's time for our Thursday show with my dear friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And Peter's got something tremendously topical for us today. And I've got an idea of the directions we're going to go in. I'm very much looking forward to it from our pre-show chat. The title of the show is The Real Story Behind the Biblical and Historical Roots of the Coronation. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with this topic today? Well, I think it may surprise many people uh overseas to know how many royalists there are, not just in South Africa, but throughout Africa. Now, when I came out the army in 1981, um, I was uh, jaywalking down JP Street in downtown Joburg, wondering where all the cars were. And uh, I was uh, everywhere I went, scripture, gift missions on, all closed for the day. When I got back to my host in Pretoria that night, I said, did you see the wedding? And what wedding? Well, I completely missed the whole thing. Princess Diana and Charles were getting married, and I did not even uh, know about it. It just shows how out of touch I was being on the border for several months before that. And uh, So all of Joburg and Pretoria seemed to shut down for this wedding. Well, I was in Zambia lecturing at uh, university back in 2011, April 2011, when um, I had no choice. Everything shut down for the wedding of Prince William and Catherine, and the university and all over the place, they put up big screens and all the students, it looked like Zambia was completely focused on that wedding. I don't think many people in Britain would realize how many royalists are in the old northern Rhodesia, uh, Zambia today. But uh, that was major focus. And, uh, of course, the Queen's funeral was somehow like 4 billion people worldwide watched it. And uh, there's no doubt that this is going to be a major focus coming up now, this this upcoming uh, Saturday the 6th of May for the coronation and um, all over the world there's fascination interest well several of the things that um, get our attention here in South Africa South Africa's got a role in the coronation which may surprise many people to know but for example the scepter the big diamond in the middle is the star of Africa one or Cullinan one the Cullinan diamond the largest diamond ever 
uh, found was found just north of Pretoria in 1905, and in 1906, Jan Smuts organized it to be a gift to um, King Edward VII, and it was placed in the sept- in the scepter and uh, also in the imperial crown. So we've got Conan I, or the Star of Africa I, is in the scepter, and the Star of Africa II, the second part of the Conan diamonds, in the imperial crown, which is, uh, of course, going to be used on this occasion too. Now, just a bit of an anecdote. Uh, at the time that the Cullinan diamond was found, 3,000 carats, the largest diamond ever found, uh, and Jan Smuts decided to gift it to the British crown, um, there was a big ceremony made of the diamond being uh, handed over uh, on board a British warship in Simonstown to be transported back to the British Isles. In fact, that was a false flag deception operation. The real stone was put in a normal package and sent by normal mail, surface mail, sea mail, uh, to uh, Amsterdam, where it was then cut up by the professional diamond cutters. Obviously, uh, the postal service used to be a lot more reliable than it is now, but interesting anecdote how times have changed. So South Africa's got a role in this upcoming um, coronation, but uh, there's something else that's foreign that's should be of interest, and that's the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny, the oblong rectangular block of red sandstone, which has been used for centuries in the coronation of Scottish monarchs, and before that, Irish monarchs too. So um, the Stone of Scone or Stone of Destiny is accommodated just under the actual um, throne or chair of of King Edward, and there's there's a shelf there for the stone, and it's a, it's a red sandstone. It plainly comes from the Middle East, uh, and uh, from the area where Palestine would be. Over the years, it's been called also Jacob's Pillow, believed to be the stone that Jacob rested his head on in the wilderness. But how did it get to the British Isles? And that's actually another story entirely. Um, and that is when uh, Britain was, um, sorry, when Judea was being destroyed by the Babylonians, 588 BC, the, um, uh, the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah, saw his sons murdered before him, executed by the Babylonians, and then they, they put his eyes out. So the last thing he saw was the end of his male line. But uh, Princess Tia, um, along with her sisters, so two princesses, the two last princesses of the house of Judea, fled to Egypt, went there under uh, the prophet Jeremiah, and then they actually traveled through to Scotland and Ireland after that. And Princess Tia carried this stone the Stone of Scone or the Stone of Destiny the or Jacob's Pillar, through to Ireland, and she married into the royal family of uh, Ireland. And the uh, stone was first used at Mount One of the Irish kings were uh, crowned, on seated on the stone. And then later it was stolen and taken to Scotland. So when the Scottish complain about being stolen by King Edward I and taken to Westminster Abbey, uh, the Irish remind us that actually the Scottish stole it from the Irish. So that's an interesting bit of anecdote. The stone of Scone, people have been fighting of it. Why all this conflict over the stone, uh, which is not that big, and it only weighs about 250-odd uh, uh, pounds. It's not a particularly valuable stone, you would think. And yet there's been so much conflict over it. And within Queen Elizabeth II's reign, she allowed for it to go back to Scotland, where it is housed, protected in the castle in Edinburgh, 
on the condition that it is returned to Westminster Abbey for every coronation, as is taking place this coming Saturday, for example. So the significance of this is that it's a link to the people of Israel, and it's a reminder that the people of Britain, or Britain, are the people of the covenant, and uh, the ten lost tribes of Israel, but not only the lost tribes of Israel, but even linked to Judah, uh, where it was promised that there would always be a descendant of David seated on the throne. So the question is, where was the descendant of David seated on the throne uh, after the fall of Zedekiah and the collapse of, of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 588 BC? Well, the princesses of uh, Judah married into the royal families of Ireland and Scotland, and uh, that's the link. Now, when Queen Victoria was reigning, Queen Victoria commissioned a uh, genealogist to go into her genealogical line, and they traced uh, the royal line all the way back to King David. And uh, that was partly through Princess Tia, uh, who brought the stone to Ireland. That's interesting. Now, I don't have the book Coronation, but the book Coronation, uh, which is a lovely big coffee table book um, that came out many uh, years uh, back, and uh, it's got a lot of phenomenal details, including the entire genealogy of the uh, uh, by Roy Strong. Roy Strong brought out the book Coronation, a History of uh, Kingship and the British Monarchy. It has the details of of the whole genealogy going back to King uh, David, uh, showing that the royal line continues through through Britain, and um, that uh, not only that, but it's um, it's got uh, quite a few of the details of how most of the kings and queens of England, especially Queen Victoria, were convinced that the uh, British throne is a continuation of King David's line, which also explains why we've got the harp of King David in the British family's royal crest, as well, of course, the lines of Judah. Um, so that's an interesting link. And then there's so much in the actual uh, coronation ceremony that's thoroughly biblical. So if you turn to 2 Samuel 5, verse 3, we read, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. So we already see the, the um, practice of anointing, and the British royal family is the only royal family in Europe that does anointing as part of the coronation service. We read in 2 Chronicles 23, 11, and they brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, that's the scriptures, made him king, then Jehadiah and his sons anointed him and said, long live the king. And even the phrase, long live the king, and the national anthem and the, and the chanting, it that comes from the Bible. It's, it's the word straight from the crowning of King David and of Josiah and so many others through uh, King Solomon. All of these are um, recorded in the scriptures. In fact, there's every aspect of the coronation service comes from the Bible, from the Old Testament. And as the Book of Common Prayer um, uh, reasserts, the people of, of Britain, the Anglo-Saxons, are uh, the children of Israel. Brithan, um, Brith covenant uh, in Hebrew. Brith, the Brith, Brithan is the land of the covenant. British, um, the people of the covenant. And um, this has been the views of most of the church leaders in uh, Britain through the centuries and of the kings and queens, that uh, in fact the people on the British Isles are descendants of the children of Israel, which is why there's so much link. In fact, even the term Saxons, Saxons, Isaac's sons, 
um, the etymology, the fact that we even called Caucasians, that comes from Caucasian mountains, uh, where the children of Israel who were um, exiled after the fall of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and uh, they were sent to the Caucasian mountains, basically between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and of course continued to migrate north and west until they ended up in the British Isles. So northwestern Europe, including the Vikings, were plainly at the sense of the uh, of the lost tribes of Israel, so-called. And the prophecies made, and you shall be called great. Well, there's only one country in the world with the word great in its name. And your descent will be as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the sky. Uh, you shall possess the gates of your enemies, which who else has possessed the gates of enemies? Like everything from Gibraltar, Singapore, uh, Samarthan, uh, Tolkien Islands. Possessing all the naval gates, uh, so many of the great strategic military gates around the world, and these days economic gates, uh, Britain has been a very pivotal place. But even more important, the prophecy that the children of Abraham would be a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth. Well, who else could fulfill that requirement? Who else has been a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth? In terms of providing the scriptures, just think of the British and Foreign Bible Society translations, Bible distribution, the missionaries, the greatest century of missions, and the great missionaries, everyone from William Carey to David Livingston and Hudson Taylor and Mary Slessor, C.T. Studd, the great missionary movement that took the gospel to all the four corners of the world. This, again, comes from um, plainly from the British Isles and from the Anglo-Saxon peoples who are uh, fulfillments of so many of these prophecies. Now, uh, there's quite a lot in the actual ceremonies, which is very thoroughly biblical, which is inspiring, and uh, you just think of how all the families and nations of the earth have been blessed by the uh, children of Israel and uh, uh, those who are the, the true children of the covenant. Uh, in the ceremony, there is not only the scepter given, but the orb, which is a globe, basically. It's a circular, um, hollow ball, uh, gold around the outside with diamonds and other precious stones on it, and it's got the cross on top, symbolizing the rule of Christ as, as the King of kings and Lord of lords over all the earth and all the kingdoms of the earth. In the coronation ceremony of the 2nd of June, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II made the coronation oath in these words. The Archbishop asked, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God with true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom a Protestant reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England? And to all this, Queen Elizabeth II responded, all this I promised to do. And the Archbishop then asked, will you to your power cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? And the Queen responded, I will. Now, we trust that the uh, new king will be required to make similar pledges, but we have heard that King Charles III is trying to alter much of the Christian uh, character of the service and turn to more of an interfaith a religious service. And to this end, he's been trying to bring in people from other religions so that I know there's been a battle between Archbishop of Canterbury and the king on this, but it seems that the Anglican Church has acceded to the king's demands to include Hindus, Muslims, and Jews in the actual ceremony which the Archbishop had declared earlier is against canon law, which it certainly is. It is against the laws of the Church of England to have, other than ministers of the gospel and 
and professing Christians taking part in a worship service. This is not a state service. This is not a religious service. It is a Christian worship service in a Christian cathedral belonging to the Church of England. And the first principle of Magna Carta is that the rights and duties of the Church of England shall not be infringed. And every monarch has had to pledge to uphold Magna Carta. And here's the first principle of Magna Carta, to respect the rights and the duties of the Church of England. And so to require them to have a Muslim imam, a Hindu priest, or a Hindu prime minister, and uh, in this case, and a Jewish rabbi taking part is just a violation of church law. Can you imagine if there was some Islamic ceremony going on in, uh, let's say, Tehran? Do you think that they would be happy to incorporate a Christian evangelist or minister or a Jewish rabbi in uh, an Islamic ceremony in one of their mosques? You know, obviously not. I don't know that there's a religion on the planet that would uh, do this. And yet Christians are being expected to incorporate um, uh, non-Christian religious leaders, leaders of false religions in our understanding, uh, to take part in what's meant to be a Christian worship service and a communion service. So uh, interestingly, uh, in the last great coronation ceremony for Queen Elizabeth II, part of the ceremony was the sword of state carried before her. The queen arose from her chair, went to the high altar, and made the solemn oath in the sight of all the people, laying a hand on the holy scriptures, declaring the things which I have heretofore promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. She kissed the Bible and signed the oath. And the moderator of the Church of Scotland presented her with a Bible, saying this is the most valuable thing that the world affords, the Bible, and handing the Bible over. And uh, this reminds us of something else connected with the diamonds in her crown and scepter. David Livingston, who, by the way, is buried at the entrance to Westminster Abbey. So as the procession comes in or anyone comes in through the great doors, they must walk right past the tomb of uh, David Livingston. Well, the great Scottish missionary of the London Missionary Society, David Livingston, when he was in Northern Cape around Kuruman, which is not far from Kimberley, he found diamonds, lots of diamonds, and he threw them in the bush and said nothing about it. And uh, the day came when Henry Morton Stanley, the American journalist, found him at Ujiji, uh, 1871, on 10th of November, walked up and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, uh, that he started to give David Livingston accounts of all the news that had taken part in the world, which included diamonds being discovered in South Africa, in the Northern Cape. And David Livingston just nodded and said, I wondered how long it would take them. And the story came out that Livingston knew there were diamonds, had seen them, he had studied geology, he was very well aware of what he had found, and he threw them in the bush and said nothing about them. So Stanley was intrigued. Why did you not sell him? I couldn't do that, said David Livingston. Um, we were trying to evangelize and disciple the Tswana people. We did not yet even have a church really established amongst them. We couldn't allow the work of the gospel to be undermined by all these miners and all the vice and saloons and gambling and drink and all that coming in, it would have destroyed the Tuan of people before we'd even built a congregation amongst them. He said they weren't ready. So he threw the diamonds away. So Stanley was intrigued further and said, why did you not take some back to England and sell them there without saying where they came from? I couldn't have done that, said David Livingston. These were the most precious diamonds the world had ever seen. They would have torn the place apart. They knew where it came from until they found them. So no, he, he said, he had found the pearl of great price, the gospel. He wasn't going to get distracted and sidetracked, derailed by diamonds. Uh, he is focused on the fulfillment, the Great Commission, 
And so he kept folks in that. So that reminds us that a key part of the coronation service is that the Bible is the most valuable thing the world affords. And again, this reminds us that when Queen Victoria uh, was queen, a visiting African prince asked her, what is the secret of Britain's greatness? And of course, in the 1800s, Britain was great. It was the greatest political, economic, and military force and spiritual force in the world. What is the secret of Britain's greatness? She was asked. Queen Victoria handed a Bible to the prince and said, the Bible is the source of Britain's greatness, which doubtless is true. Uh, it is the Bible that made Britain great. And when you think of all the different things that have uh, epitomized the kingdom of God, like Handel's Messiah proclaiming the kingdom of God, um, when King George II attended the premiere of Handel's Messiah, he stood during the Hallelujah Chorus. And of course, when the king stands, everyone must stand. And he initiated a tradition that endures to this day. So that even in Cape Town, at the ends of the earth, every time Handel the Messiah is performed, we all stand to our feet at attention for the Hallelujah Chorus. Many times my wife and daughter has sung the Hallelujah Chorus and the Handel the Messiah in their choirs. And uh, it's been wonderful to attend it in St. George's Cathedral and Cape Town City Hall, many other places, Strand Street Lutheran Church. And what an experience. And we always remember to stand for the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, when Queen Victoria was very old and she is attending a performance of Handel's Messiah, the Queen was informed by the organizers that in view of her great age, they requested her please to remain seated when everyone else stands during the Hallelujah Chorus. And uh, when the Hallelujah Chorus began, Queen Victoria, empress of the greatest empire the world had ever known, she stood and she bowed with tears in her eyes, her lips trembling, her body shaking. And the Dean of Westminster Abbey, Dean Ferrer, reported that Queen Victoria had asked if she, if he thought that the Lord would return while she was alive. And she re reports him, nothing would give me greater joy than to pass on the crown of Great Britain and India to him with my own hands. And so Queen Victoria recognized her duty and her destiny was to rule and reign Christ's kingdom, faithful to the scriptures and to the laws of God, in order to hand the crown and scepter to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he returns. Because the throne and the crown of Great Britain belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is uh, this has been the views of the monarchs through the ages, that that throne that we call uh, King Edward's throne, and that crown that is called St. Edward's crown, is actually the Lord's crown. And it is being held in trust by people who are descendants of King David for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he returns. And most of the monarchs of Europe have understood through the ages that in fact, they only hold uh, the crown as um, stewards. And so it's so important for us to recognize again, as we are approaching this coronation, there's a lot of excitement worldwide about the coronation. I'm sure we're gonna see pageants like we have not seen since 1953, which was before I was born. So the greatest pageants in our lifetime for sure. And uh, I believe that it's so important for us to look beyond the controversies of the coronation and the royal family right now and use this opportunity to remind people of the far greater king, the far greater kingdom, and the far more important coronation that's prophesied in the Bible and that is still to come. And as a result of this, I think we need to remind people um, that the Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom. And it may surprise many listeners to know the word church appears only three times in the gospels. Only three times you read the word church. But 
kingdom, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven occur 120 times in the Gospels, at least 120 times. So the overwhelming emphasis of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ was a kingdom message. Now we read that our Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. But we must admit that we don't hear the gospel of the kingdom of God that often. What do we hear? We tend to hear the gospel of salvation. Now the gospel of the kingdom, of course, includes a gospel of salvation, but it's only a small part. The gospel of the kingdom is about the king. The gospel of salvation, as preached in all too many churches and through much of the mainstream Christian media, is mostly about me and how I can be blessed and healed and prospered and enriched. How I can get improved and saved from all the negative consequences of my bad decisions and still ultimately end up in heaven. The way the gospel is preached by all too many today is something of a therapeutic self-help message where the emphasis on me with God playing a supporting role in how I can fulfill my dreams and attain my desires. So we're not hearing the gospel of the kingdom of God that much these days. We're hearing mostly about the gospel of salvation. But the gospel of the kingdom of God is all about the king of kings and the lord of lords, his crown, his coming, his cross, his great commission, his plans and purposes for the nations, and what we can do to be faithful subjects, servants, and soldiers of his eternal kingdom. Our Lord Jesus Christ personified the kingdom of God that he proclaimed. He is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords. He is the living embodiment of everything he enunciated. The person and the proclamation of the king are inseparable. His life and his lips are always in unison. His counsels must determine our conduct. His person and his proclamations were as seamless as the robe he wore. The words he declared were confirmed by his deeds. He brought sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute. He cleansed the leopard. He made the crippled to walk and he raised the dead to life. And as our Lord Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Our Lord Jesus Christ was born king. Now nobody is born a king, well, except Christ. People might be born a prince or a princess, an heir to the throne, but how can anyone be born a king? But Jesus was born a king. And Psalm 2 verse 6, he is proclaimed king by God the Father. The nations rage, the people's plot and vain thing, but God has installed his son, his Messiah, as king on Mount Zion. And so Jesus even affirmed his kingship before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate asked, are you a king? And Jesus said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. And uh, plainly, Jesus was the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. The kingdom of God has come amongst you, he taught. And he was the epitome of that kingdom. He had a humble entry into the world. He was born in a stable amongst animals, but the angels sang. And in time, his kingdom has been displayed with outward glory. But in the person of the king, walking the dusty paths of Galilee, of Galilee or walking on the water, the kingdom of God was present. The kingdom does not make the king. The king makes the kingdom. The nature of the king determines the character of his kingdom. And the fact that the Jewish religious leaders failed to recognize the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies in our Lord Jesus Christ is to their eternal disgrace and shame. But their failure does not in any way negate his sovereign power or his identity. He is the king of kings. The fickle mob in Jerusalem went from crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the highest on Palm Sunday to crucify him within less than a week. They went from hail him to nail him in less than seven days. That's how fickle the mob can be. But the kingdom of God requires repentance, discipleship, and evangelism. Our Lord Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
So to follow Christ, which requires repentance and discipleship, leads to evangelism. You follow Christ, he will make you a fisher of men. And the kingdom of God is a mystery to most. Jesus said, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And many of the parables seem a mystery to most people, but believers in God can understand what those parables mean. And five of the Lord's parables describe the beginning of his kingdom, whose value justifies any sacrifice, the pearl of great price, which Livingston preferred over diamonds. In five parables, the growth and the principles of God's kingdom are outlined. In seven of the parables, Christ forecast the consummation of his kingdom. Other parables emphasize the personal experience of subjects of his kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should go and scatter seed on the ground, and the seed sprouts and grows, he does not know how, but like the mustard seed, which is small when it's sown, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes great in all the herbs and shoots out large branches. The kingdom of God grows by the word of God. And yes, some ground is hard ground, some ground is stony ground, some is thorny ground, but some is good soil. And those hearts that are good soil can produce 30, 60, 100 fold. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So you need humility and faith to enter God's kingdom. And our Lord said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. With man it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. To enter God's kingdom may seem to be like entering a camel through the eye of a needle, but we're talking about miracles here. Jesus could walk on the water. He could say to a corpse like, um, Lazarus come forth and even though Lazarus had been dead four days he came out of the tomb that doesn't seem reasonable to expect a corpse to respond to your words but the words of Jesus have such power regenerating power that even the dead can come to life he could still the storm with the word he could still the waves and the storms with just saying a word Jesus said his kingdom comes to destroy the enemies of God in Mark 12, we read, when Jesus taught the parable of the wicked vine dressers in the temple, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed and those who had cried out, crucify Christ, release Barabbas, we have no king but Caesar, his blood be upon us and our children. Their great city and their temple was destroyed in AD 70. And our Lord Jesus, plainly, he is the stone which builders rejected as worthless. And there's an interesting fulfillment of this, um, of the stone that the builders rejected as worthless in Russia, because there's a massive statue in Solovetsky Island, in Lubyanka Square, or there used to be. And uh, Lubyanka Square, which is only about 900 meters from Red Square, Lubyanka Square, which was a place of horror. Uh, the KGB headquarters, the secret police headquarters uh, on Lubyanka Square, and there's a massive statue of Felix Dzinski, the founder of the Cheka, which later became the NKVD and then the KGB, uh, the secret police of the Soviet Union. Felix Dzinski, um, uh, one of the most horrific uh, people in history, and how many millions of people died as a result of his uh, rule of terror, 
Well, his monument was directly outside the Lubyanka, where so many thousands of Christians were tortured, interrogated, and murdered uh, over the years. So if somebody heard he's gone to Lubyanka, or he's been called to Lubyanka, or you've been summoned to Lubyanka, their blood would run cold. It's a place of horror. And it was symbolized by this statue of, of Jasensky. Well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Iron Curtain, and the opening up of Eastern Europe to gospel, the people of Russia pulled the statue of Jasensky down. In fact, there were 22,000 idols in the Soviet Union that were pulled down in about the 1990s. Statues of Lenin, Karl Marx, and of course, Tzensky, amongst others, pulled down, and now in the rubbish heap. Well, interestingly enough, if you go to Lubyanka Square today, yes, there's no statue, but there is a simple stone. It's not just any stone. It's a stone from Solovetsky Monastery, from Solovetsky Island. Now, Solovetsky Island was in the White Sea. It's in the Arctic Circle. It's a six-month night and six-month day at one of the most remote places on Earth. And the Soviet Union turned this monastery into the first prototype concentration camp of the Soviet Union. They killed 95,000 ministers of the gospel there, executed in Solovetsky Island, including the patriarch of the Orthodox Russian Church. But today, a stone from that monastery has been put in the square, where in the park opposite the circle where the statue used to be. And this reminds us that Jesus said, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. And uh, this reminds us again of this vision that Daniel had. Uh, Daniel was given to understand the vision uh, from um, the uh, vision given to Nebuchadnezzar of a massive statue with the head of gold and a chest of silver and a stomach of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay and a stone. Peter, you dropped out. Are you back with us? I am back with you. Yes. Well, internet uh, connectivity can be an issue. Glad that you reconnected. Thank you. Okay, please continue. So I was talking about the statue that's been destroyed in um, Lubyanka Square, but replaced by a stone from Solovetsky Island, just reminding us, as Jesus said, whoever falls on this stone will be cut to pieces, but if this stone falls on someone, it will crush them to dust. And plainly, Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected as worthless, and he is the chief cornerstone. And the kingdom of God will replace and destroy all the kingdoms of men. All the enemies of God will inevitably fall. And this is part of what we are to celebrate with the kingdom of God. So as people are focused on an earthly kingdom, let's remind them of the kingdom of God and of the greatest king, the king of kings and lord of lords, before whom each one of us will have to bow and give an account of our lives on the last day. Jesus is coming again and he will judge the living and dead. His armies will destroy the armies of Antichrist and all the enemies of God. We read in Revelation 17 about Babylon, the beast, and the harlot, the false prophet, and the rulers and inhabitants of the earth who are made drunk with the wine of a fornication and who wage war against God and against his people, who blaspheme God's name. And these blasphemous religious leaders are arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in their hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of their fornications. And our Lord Jesus warned, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. All who desire to live a godly life in union with Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, we read in 2 Timothy 3.12. We must pass through many tribulations into the kingdom of God. 
Paul taught in Acts 14, verse 22. For to this you were called, 1 Peter 2, verse 21 says, because Christ suffered for you and left you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So we understand that the kingdom of God requires sacrifice. In fact, true love is measured by sacrifice. To be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, we need to be willing to suffer for Christ. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you ought to suffer, you read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. So plainly, uh, we are called, yes, to suffer, but to persevere. The kingdom of God requires obedience. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. A simple profession of faith is not enough. Practical obedience, applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life, is required. Just as in the coronation service, the king pledges allegiance to the king of kings, and after his allegiance to God is made clear, then his nobles and his barons and those around him, they pledge allegiance to him. And the point is, it is not that the king has all power residing in him. The king has delegated authority. All authority is a limited authority, and all authority is delegated and answerable. And ultimately, there's the king of kings. And so in the Reformation era, they took the phrase of the Middle Ages, rex lex, rex meaning king and lex meaning law, from the Latin. They took rex lex and inverted it to lex rex, lex law, rex king. The law is king. The king is under the law. And in a coronation service, this is actually epitomized, as the king must first pledge allegiance to God, and then his people pledge allegiance to him. And just as you owe allegiance to your king, your king owes allegiance to the king of kings. And if your king is in rebellion to the king of kings, we must not join him in his rebellion. The people only pledge allegiance to the king after the king has pledged his allegiance to God. And all the symbolism of the coronation service makes this clear. And it's, it's quantified. It's epitomized in the scriptures and the gospels and the laws of God, which he must swear to uphold and to, and to administer in accordance with. So, so much of the regalia and the ceremony, I trust people look at the coronation service with new eyes when they consider what the Bible teaches and the symbolism like the orb with the cross on top of the orb and the Lordship of Christ in all areas of life, kissing the Bible, swearing to rule in accordance with the laws of God and the gospel of Christ in mercy with justice. These principles are part of it. So the king must be in allegiance to the king of kings. And so bring in other religions and uh, uh, secularizing, it dilutes the whole purpose and, in fact, undermines the whole purpose of the coronation. You have no authority unless you're under authority. And so it's so vital to understand the gospel of the kingdom of God and for every king to be in submission to the king of kings. In fact, our Lord Jesus, he began his earthly ministry with the kingdom message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount details the required conduct of subjects of the kingdom of God. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And the Lord's prayer is centered on the kingdom of heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, for God's kingdom to come, Satan's kingdoms must be defeated. For God's will to be done, Satan's plans and schemes must be exposed and defeated. And we need to recognize how much is promised of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's Isaiah 9 verse 7, one of the great verses of Christmas. And again, it's 
centered on the kingdom of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ is described in Luke 1 to 32. He'll be called great. He'll be called the son of the highest. And Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So the kingdom of God is such a vital part in the scriptures. We should repent that we have neglected to study and teach it with more emphasis. But I think this coronation coming is a wonderful opportunity for us to go back to look at what does the scripture teach on the kingdom of God and remind people of this greater king and greater kingdom and greater coronation coming up. Because Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Lot's wife was warned, don't look back as the angels rescued the family from Sodom. God condemned that wicked city to destruction. Yet Lot's wife still desired Sodom. And her disobedience to the clear command brought severe judgment. Many of the Hebrews that had been delivered from slavery in Egypt wanted to go back to Egypt. And they were condemned to wander in the wilderness to all die there. Before God raised up a new generation, a faithful generation, the Joshua generation, to enter and take the promised land. Of that previous unbelieving generation, only Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land. The rest died in the wilderness as judgment from God. We need to be those who persevere and who sacrifice. True love is measured by sacrifice. And so uh, the kingdom of God's message is to... Jesus said, those who love him obey his commandments. Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God, and if children, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. So, plainly, this message of the kingdom of God is of victory. They are those who will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are as called, chosen, and faithful. Revelation 17 speaks of the called, chosen, and faithful of God as he fights against the whore, the Babylon, the Babylon and the beast. And uh, we can see evidences of this hostility to God and hatred of the kingdom of God in the blasphemy industry of Hollywood and in uh, so much of the Christophobia of the mainstream, lamestream mass media in the apostasy of the World Council of Churches, in the Roman papacy, in the anti-Christian agenda of the United Nations, and the violent persecution of Christians by so many member states of the UN, including the so-called Human Rights Commission, which includes such uh, brilliant countries as Red China and Sudan as chairman sometimes of the Human Rights Commission while they lead the world in human rights abuses. But the Lamb of God will utterly defeat the beast and his apostates, blasphemous religious leaders, the arrogant political leaders, the Babylon, the harlot, the false church, those guilty of abominations and those drunk with the blood of the saints, those guilty of murdering babies in the womb and massacring the martyrs of Christ, they will be destroyed. Because the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world to destroy the works of the devil. And I think that is well epitomized with this statue that's been removed in, in Lubyanka Square and the stone from Solovetsky Island in Lubyanka Square reminding us Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone. He is a stone which the builders rejected as worthless. Anyone who falls on Christ will be cut to pieces, but if he falls on anyone, they will be crushed to dust. Revelation 1 verse 5 says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He is the blessed and only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. On his robe, a name is written, king of kings and lord of lords. And if you've Listen to Handel's Messiah. Hear these verses pounded out, celebrating the victory of Christ and his kingship. And 
That is why uh, at this time we need to remind people of this greater king and this greater kingdom, and that he is the one who is coming again. He will rule and uh, he will reign. And so all the people of God must serve and obey God. Uh, that's the message of the kingdom of, of heaven. Daniel 6.26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He has steadfast favor. His kingdom is the one which shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. Daniel 7.27, then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And I've had the privilege of seeing God's kingdom advancing in persecuted countries, where the church has been persecuted in Eastern Europe, in Romania, in Sudan, seeing God's kingdom advancing even when uh, church has been bombed and burned and Christians persecuted and martyred. The kingdom of God is seen where men and women submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are seen in the lives of the subjects of the King of kings. And you see the kingdom of God in excellence in art and architecture and music, such as Handel's Messiah, and the great cathedrals proclaim the kingdom of God. And so when people walk into a great cathedral like Westminster Abbey, or in Salisbury Cathedral, or any of these great cathedrals, or hear great musical compositions like Handel's Messiah, they should be reminded of the kingdom of God, and they need to stand up for Jesus, and to proclaim his lordship, and to remind ourselves that all these earthly kingdoms are as nothing compared to that of the eternal kingdom of God. All over South Africa, I see monuments and graves of British soldiers who died for queen and empire. And uh, like the Battle of East Luanda in, in Zuland and Rooksdrift. And many people sacrificed to extend earthly kingdoms that no longer exist and for earthly kings and queens who are no longer alive. But how much greater to serve the king of kings and lord of lords who will rule forever and ever, and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. And so at this particular time, as we head towards this most important uh, coronation service, um, with unfortunately a lot of controversy and compromise too, we need to remind people of the kingdom of God, which pioneered hospitals and schools and churches, ministering to body, mind and spirit throughout the world, converting cannibals in the Pacific, bringing respect for life, liberty and law to wilderness regions, ending the slave trade in the 19th century, ending widow burning, ending intertribal genocide and incessant warfare. The kingdom of God ended cannibalism in the Pacific Islands and ended Islamic slavery throughout Africa, lifted industry, arts, and the sciences to the pinnacles of human achievement. As the Bible says in Habakkuk 2 verse 14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so it's only by returning to the kingdom message that nations can be saved from the disastrous consequence of violating God's laws and forgetting our covenants, and allowing those who hate God to hijack so much of our culture through secular humanist education, which has become indoctrination, or the defilement of debased, blasphemous, vile, so-called entertainment from Hollywood. We need to see Revelation 11:15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, one of the great choruses pounded out in Handel's Messiah. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day will come and earth will be as full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the seas are full of water now. And so this is what we celebrate. 
the devil shall be defeated. We must proclaim the rule and reign of Christ above all. And I heard the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thunderings. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. We need to remind our neighbors, the question is not will you bow to Christ, but when will you bow to Christ? as your rightful King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is true for Charles as much as for everyone else. We may bow to Christ today in the day of grace, when forgiveness is freely offered, while the door to heaven is wide open. Or we will be forced to bow on the day of judgment, when the day of grace is ended and when the door to heaven is firmly closed. But the fact is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the whole coronation service epitomizes this and communicates this message. We are answerable. All authority is delegated by God and is answerable to God. Do you understand what the Bible teaches in the kingdom of God? And do you acknowledge your responsibility to be a faithful subject, servant, and soldier in the kingdom of God? It is a great privilege to be one the called, chosen, and faithful of the greatest king and the greatest kingdom in all eternity. And Daniel 7, 14 says, To him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Sorry, just drinking from some water there. Um, Fascinating study today. And uh, I certainly share the beliefs regarding the uh, tribes of Israel. I would extend it. I know you focused on the Anglo-Saxon side, but I believe all um, Europeans came from the tribes of Israel. And even, you know, the tribe of Judah, that actually were, it went, uh, from my research, uh, went down through his sons, Ferez and Zara. And one of them ended up in Germany and one of them ended up in what was Ira Scotia. And it was kind of the two together. That was what I uh, read in different books like um, Symbols of Celto-Saxon Heritage by W.H. Bennett. And there's another one, The Story of Celto-Saxon Israel by the same author, W.H. Bennett. Well worth a look, those books, folks. And when you think about things like that and you think about how... uh, Europeans are being targeted wherever they are in the world today. It would stand to reason that when we see what's running the world today is pure evil and it's satanic, then who would they go after more than the descendants of God? If they're the yes. descendants of Satan, who would they attack more than the descendants of God? And that is why white people are attacked. Uh, Peter, your comments. Well, yes. In fact, uh, when people scream about anti-Semitism, so on, the fact is that um, the hostility today, you can see, is against those who've been the blessings to all the families and nations of the earth. Who has blessed all the families and nations of the earth with the gospel, with with scriptures, with the message of Christ, with ending the slave trade, with building hospitals and schools? Who's brought literacy and high standards of, of hygiene and medicine to every corner of the earth? Ended the famines that had led millions to die regularly uh, through advanced farming techniques. The people who have been a blessing to all the families and nations have been the Protestant peoples of Europe who are plainly descended from the children of God as is seen by the fulfillment of the prophecies. God blessed Abraham and his descendants that they may be a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth. And you can see have been the blessings and you can see have been the curses. And it's a bit bizarre today that those who have been a blessing are the ones being cursed by those who have benefited but who 
uh, hate the people of God and hate the name of God. Isn't it interesting, the people who hate Christ, who blaspheme his name and promote pornography and vile, debased so-called entertainment and are putting out a secular humanist evolutionary type of uh, so-called education, they're the ones who hate Christians. Now, they hate they hate Christ, they hate Christians, particularly um, heterosexual, uh, straight, uh, male and female, who, who let women be female again and so on, and uh, who are making a stand for the traditional family and who are making a stand for basic biblical principles, the Ten Commandments and so on. They hate us, the ones who are trying to um, preserve life and extend life and be a blessing even to our enemies and strangers far away. Uh, the hatred for Christ and the hatred for his people go together. So it identifies, I know most of the people in Europe have forgotten their ancestry, forgotten their heritage, and that's tragic. Too much is given, much is required, and too much more is given, much more is required. And recognizing that we have roots with the biblical people of the, of the Old Testament in Western Europe today, and of course in faraway outposts such as I'm in Cape Town, South Africa, and people who are in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, those who part the company of nations, that's part of the prophecies about Abraham's descendants. There will be a company of nations who will possess the gates of the enemies and who will be a blessing to all the families and nations of earth. And uh, who else fulfills these prophecies? But you can tell who the people of God are. They're the people who are hated by those who, who love evil. And uh, the same people who love to blaspheme the name of Christ are the ones who hate us. So just look at the blasphemy industry and then you can understand plainly where all this is coming from and why there's so much irrational hatred for Christianity, the family, pre-born babies, the name of God. I mean, all things that are precious are under attack right now. Even, even the very fact of our gender differences, to think of the crazy hatred right now for, for women who want to keep women's bathrooms for women only and women's sports for females alone. And uh, the, the irrational hatred, you can see everything God has made is being attacked. And... Uh, it's very clear who are the children of God and who are the enemies of God. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Excellent summation there. And before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Certainly. My personal email is peter at frontline.org.za or ZA as Americans would say. So peter at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E dot O-R-G dot Z-A or Z-A. Our website is frontlinemissionsa.org. But I draw your attention also to my Bible study page. Um, I've got Bible studies such as what I've just spoken about in short on the kingdom of God. I've got a, a fuller study with all the Bible verses and so on in, on our livingstonfellowship.co.za website. Our mission headquarters is Livingston House. Of course, David Livingston, the greatest missionary friend Africa ever had. So our website's called livingstonfellowship.co.za. And I've got an article on there called King, The Kingdom of God where you will see a lot of the pictures and a lot of details that we are talking about and all the Bible verses I've quoted, if you want to do such a study for yourself on the kingdom of God, livingstonfellowship.co.za. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And those websites, along with Peter's email address and some of his other websites as well, are all in the posts for the shows that we do, that we do together. So just get over to achshow.com and uh, bookmark these different links for Peter's various websites. There's so much um, wealth of material. Many of you know that I do the uh, Christian message on a Sunday that's only available on my website, uh, achshow.com. 
and that is all Peter's work. It's uh, studies, presentations, sermons that he's put together. I read one out a week, and you can find them on his website. It's very difficult, so it's very easy to find. I don't include the direct link to the sermon. I include the link to Frontline Fellowship, so you can go in and have a look around. But what I do for the show image is I will type in Frontline Fellowship and the name of that uh, particular presentation for that week or sermon, however you want to call it, and it will generally come up straight away at the top of a Google search and then I'll look through that and I'll get one of the images out of that. So if you look at last Sunday's traditional Christian message, you see Peter handing biblical literature to a child in a in a bus. And that came out of the very... Uh, presentation the written presentation that i read from in um, on on peter's website so yeah it's important to have a look around there and you'll find so much information that we simply wouldn't have the time to get into on this show but that being said i want to thank peter so much for joining us today for a show entitled the real story behind the biblical and historical roots of the coronation Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day, and bye for now.